dynasties now that are connected with Mesopotamia, and this is called Old Babylon. And so this is where we want to focus our attention for a few minutes this morning. It was founded about 1894 by a group of people who were known as the Amorites. Amorites represented a tribal group. We hear of them in the Old Testament. You recognize their name because they pop up occasionally, usually as part of the Canaanite population, with a list of ites, you know, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the, so on, and, and you know all of those that tend to be uh, delineated there. Well, one of the major groups that makes it to that list are the Amorites. The Amorites were far-flung, and we have quite a bit of information about them from sources outside the Bible. They're sometimes called the Amuru, or other names, but clearly it's referring to the same group. They were viewed from the point of view of people in Mesopotamia as rather rude and backwards. They were probably viewed about the way that ancient Romans tended to view the barbarians, threatening, violent, scary, but not very advanced. And that's kind of the way the civilized people of Mesopotamia tended to view these who were called the Amorites. But the Amorites did insinuate themselves into Mesopotamia and began during this intermediate period that we're describing, which there was no centralized authority. They tended to just sort of show up here and there, and many times they were willing to take the more lower class, if I can put it that way, type jobs, jobs that nobody else wanted, and they gradually began to become more and more of a prominent fixture in Mesopotamian life. There was always a sense of a difference between native Chaldeans, who had lived there, of course, for generations, and these relative newcomers who were finding their way in, who were known as the Amorites. But nevertheless, as they came, they began to move into certain villages, but they established a few communities of their own, and one of these was called Babylon. So Babylon is a city that was actually founded by the Amorites, and uh, it uh, is today not much to see, but uh, that's a photograph that was taken of the ruins of Babylon in uh, 1932. It looks like rubble. Those kind of wall structures you're seeing there are actually uh, pretty good sized. If there were a human being there, you'd see that they actually reach up quite a bit over a person's head, but it, was, it would be very clear from visiting that site that uh, it was once a great civilized area. It's been uh, rebuilt considerably so that today, in 2003, it would look something more like this. And you can tell that once again the refurbishing of it has been fairly significant. This is a shot, uh, these are U.S. Marines, of course, in the front there, and it was part of our occupation for a while of Iraq. And Babylon is located along the Euphrates there in central Iraq. It uh, kind of made press a few years ago because when Saddam Hussein was still with us, he was threatening to go down and rebuild Babylon. You may recall that. And he was actually going to style himself as the next great Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody remember that? And, and people who are interested in end-of-the-world stuff were getting all juiced up about Saddam Hussein being the Antichrist and so on. I guess it didn't work out that way. But uh, nevertheless, Babylon is a known site, and that's uh, what it looks like. The greatest ruler of this uh, region was known as Hammurabi. There were a series of minor rulers who more or less, these Amorite rulers uh, set up 
life in Babylon, but the first one who really comes along to make a name for himself in some way that reaches outside the bounds of that city-state was Hammurabi. He was... There we are. I don't know if you can see that very well. He was, uh, I was about to say a good-looking guy, but you really can't tell much from that, can you? This is a sculpted head, uh, allegedly, of Hammurabi. At least that's probably our best guess. That's presently located at the Louvre in Paris. And there's been quite a few similar artifacts that have been uncovered along the way, and it seems that this is probably the character that we're dealing with here. Uh, Hammurabi began his raid in, in 1792, so it's about 100 years after the uh, founding of this city that Hammurabi comes along. When he, when he comes to the rule in Babylon, he's just another of these kind of minor rulers. Babylon has been ruled by several along the way. About the time that he becomes the ruler, if we're trying to orient ourselves to what's going on in biblical history, this would be about the time of the birth of uh, Jacob and Esau. They were born in 1791, about the time that Hammurabi became king. Jacob and Esau, of course, you know, are the sons of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And so we're right in the middle of what's called the patriarchal period. So the rule of Hammurabi is taking place in Mesopotamia about the time that we have the patriarchs on the scene in Canaan. Abraham may still be alive. The Bible says he lived to be 175 years old. If that's the case, then he would have still been alive at this time. But of course, he was getting up there by this point as well. So uh, Jacob and Esau are born about this time. Initially, when Hammurabi takes control of Babylon as the next ruler in this line of rulers. He's a relatively minor king surrounded by much greater powers, and it wouldn't appear, you wouldn't think on the face of it, that there was any likelihood that he was going to become some kind of major character that we'd be talking about 3,000 years later. But nevertheless, he was a very bright guy, and he had designs that he seems to have been planning and implementing from a very early period in his career as a ruler. The first of which had to do with the publication of his rather famous code. And so if you've heard of Hammurabi at all, then what you've probably heard of is the code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi's code was published about five years into his reign. He seems to have been enlightened in this sense that he knew that the possibility of growth and stability and order in a community depended in some significant measure on a sense that people would have of a kind of predictability about the law. It was common at the time for the king to simply be the rule. Whatever the king said was the way it was, and that would always give rise to a certain degree of anxiety and instability and unpredictability depending on what mood the king happened to be in. Hammurabi had some idea that it's good for people to be able to rely on fixed principles. And we would say that's a fairly enlightened attitude. And he seems to have wanted to communicate that thought to his people early on. And so he publishes this code for which he's become famous. And we'll go back uh, in a few minutes and take a closer look at that. About 20 years into his reign, he begins with a rather surgical precision to expand 
And so, picking out the weakest of his neighboring uh, colleague rulers, he attacks and conquers. And he does it in a way that just gradually develops increasing power and expanse until finally, by the time he is finished with this campaign of expansion, he has developed an empire which is pretty expansive in its size. So you can see looking at this, if you can see it uh, right in this, the darker colored area in the middle there is Babylon, its immediate regions, and then it extends all the way down to the Persian Gulf and up past Mari all the way to, uh, or nearly to, Quran. And so Hammurabi really does, by the time he's finished, dominate all of Mesopotamia. The only ruler that had a larger empire than Hammurabi was Sargon, who we looked at back with the Akkadian dynasty. So he's quite uh, effective not only in empire building, but also in his understanding of law and how it should work out in, in the life of his people. Hammurabi died in the year 1750. As is often the case, he didn't have a real great plan for succession. His sons were not nearly as competent as he was, and over the next several years, a hundred years or so, the empire survived, but it kept sort of shrinking based on forces nibbling away at the external borders of it until finally by the end of this imperial period, uh, Babylon had shrunk considerably. So he really is the guy that brings it to its highest and most impressive expanse. Uh, Babylon fell in a surprise attack by the Hittites in 1595. So that's the end of old Babylon. That's kind of the quick historical sketch. The Hittites were up in what's called Anatolia, otherwise known as Turkey. They came down in a very swift attack and just sacked Babylon, but they didn't care about staying around, so they just took some good stuff, went home, left a vacuum, and the group that came in in that vacuum were a group called the Kassites, and I'll save any comment about them for a little bit later. But that's, that's the basic sketch of old Babylon, so probably more than you wanted to know on the subject, but there we are. The um, code for which Hammurabi is famous was inscribed on a stone stele, as it's called. That thing is about eight feet tall. And again, if uh, anyone ever seen it, it's in the Louvre. Has anyone ever seen it up close and personal? I never have. But it's a pretty good sized unit. And this thing was uh, uh, the, the, it was the discovery of this that gave rise to our understanding of what's called Hammurabi's Code. It was intended to be displayed publicly. So as I say, about five years into his reign, this big monument was placed out apparently right in the city square. Most of these Mesopotamian cities were organized around a center square, which usually had a religious character to it. If there was a ziggurat in the town, which there certainly was in Babylon, that's where you would find it. And it appears that this monument was right out in front. So interestingly, Hammurabi wants to tie this code that he's published now to his people in Babylon to some sort of divine source. And it has a kind of quasi-religious aspect to it, even though for the most part it represents rather practical law and practical principles by which people would uh, govern their lives. It was uh, the first really clear example in ancient 
you know, legislative history or jurisprudence of the development of what's called in, in civil theory uh, lex rex, the law is the king, or what we sometimes call the rule of law. It was not well known in the ancient world. This is why Hammurabi deserves some credit, you know. This was a rather surprising and enlightened development for him to come, come upon and begin to uh, uh, organize, make an organizational principle of his, his uh, rule. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it does seem to represent uh, something of a novelty in that sense. This uh, particular monument here, this stele, was uh, plundered by the Elamites. We hear of the Elamites in the Bible. They were to the east of Babylon. It's a region that eventually became known as Persia and today is called Iran. And these people came across at a certain point after the reign of Hammurabi, before the end of the Babylonian dynasty, and they plundered some of the goods from Babylon and they took this back home with them, threw it on the back of an ox cart, you know, and take it back to Elam, where it got lost, buried in the sands of time, as it were, until it was discovered in 1901 by some French archaeologists who immediately recognized its importance, and they grabbed it and took it to Paris, and it's been there since then. So it's uh, currently in France, and it was quite a sensation when it was discovered in 1901 because it was immediately recognized by those people who are familiar with these issues that, at least on the face of it, there seemed to be some correlation between Hammurabi's code on the one hand and the code that comes later through Moses on the other. And of course, critical scholars immediately jumped on that and said, oh, we knew it all along. Moses just borrowed from Hammurabi all of his stuff, and this is not divine revelation at all, you know, that kind of thing that sometimes people will uh, seize upon as a reason to doubt the trustworthiness of the scriptures. So anyway, that has made Hammurabi's code something of an interesting question for Old Testament scholars and ancient historians who are concerned about this. Well, the organization of Hammurabi's code is, is uh, it's basically 282 separate laws. They're written on 12 tablets, which are inscribed. This is a kind of a close-up of what they would look like, if anyone can make that out. That's uh, cuneiform once again. But it's uh, 282 separate laws written in Akkadian, which was the language of the day. It was intended to be read. Uh, it was uh, intended to sort of publish then the rules by which people could organize their lives and so on. The code tends to be, we'll see some examples of it in a minute, very specific. Each offense that is mentioned receives a particular punishment. Sometimes these punishments are quite severe by modern standards, there are many capital offenses, as we'll see in a minute. There are many offenses that would result in some kind of disfigurement. But one of the most dramatic aspects of the Code of Hammurabi was the use of what's called the Lex Talionis. The Lex Talionis literally means the law of the eye. It's also the root of our word retaliation. And the popular expression of it is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so the first expression we ever have in history of that rule, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, of course, we find in Hammurabi's code. That is probably the most dramatic correlation 
between Hammurabi on the one hand and Moses later, who of course uses the same formula. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the lex talionis. I don't want to be overly subtle at this point, but I do think, in fairness, one could say that when you see the lex talionis in Hammurabi's usage of it, it tends to be conceived of as something that would be applied with a certain degree of vigorous literal force, an eye for an eye. <clears throat> Many Old Testament scholars have looked at the use of that term in Moses and said this is functioning a somewhat, has a somewhat different function <clears throat> in, uh, in Moses' use of it, that it's not expected so much to be implemented in a sort of literal way, it's actually a principle of restraint. As if in Moses it's saying you cannot punish a person for a crime to a degree that is disproportionately severe based on the crime that itself was, it's only an eye for an eye, in other words, not a life for an eye, that kind of thing. Whereas in Hammurabi's use of it, that sense of restraint is not quite so clear. Now again, that would be a debated point and I'm just suggesting a perspective on that, but it is at least on the face of it interesting that we have both of them using the same code, or this, this same rule. At the very top of the stele that uh, I was just pointing out, there is this carving, which you probably noticed, and if you can see that, on the left of it there, that would be Hammurabi, and Hammurabi is in front of a seated character, and that seated character is Shamash who is the sun god of the Sumerians and was a god that was, of course, well-known throughout Mesopotamian history. The concept is that, of course, Hammurabi is receiving this code from the sun god who was associated with law and is responsible, therefore, to carry it down and promulgate it among the people. And so that's the picture. Hammurabi gets it from God or from the gods and gives it to the people. That, again, has some similarity to the biblical understanding. Moses went up on the mountain. He received the law from God, the Ten Commandments, inscribed by God, as you know, and promulgates them to the people. That's not unique to those two. We find a similar idea in Solon of Athens, in Lycurgus of Sparta, in Numa of Rome, and others, where you have this notion of the law is actually given by the gods and is entrusted through one particular person to the people for their good. And so there's nothing unique about this, and we, I don't suppose, should be too surprised that we find the biblical narrative suggesting something like that. Those are points of similarity. I think there's some points of significant difference, but nevertheless, we should at least acknowledge that those are points where you can see something that appears to be a, a similar kind of uh, idea. The parallels have been noted, as I'm saying, but I think we also need, in fairness, to recognize that there have been considerable differences between the one rule and the other. For you briefly, a little bit of the preamble from Hammurabi's code. This is a lengthy preamble, and this is only the first of about a half a dozen paragraphs, so it goes on at some length, but I just want you to think about what you hear here and compare it to what we just read in the preamble that came from the book of Exodus. So uh, my eyes aren't that good, so I'm going to try to see this from here. Uh, this is the preamble, quote, When Anu, the sublime, king of the Anunnaki, and Bel, the lord of heaven and earth, who decreed the fate of the land assigned to Marduk, 
the overruling son of Ea, God of righteousness, dominion over earthly man, and made him great among the Ajiji, they called Babylon by his illustrious name, made it great on earth, and founded an everlasting kingdom in it, whose foundations are laid so solidly as those of heaven and earth. Then Anu and Bel called by name me, Hammurabi, the exalted prince who feared God to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evildoers, so that the strong should not harm the weak, so that I should rule over the black-headed people like Shamash and enlighten the land to further the well-being of mankind. Now that's representative. It goes on, as I say, at some length. And what you notice in the flavor of this preamble is Hammurabi keeps getting more and more attention, you know. He really is using this as a kind of PR piece to sell the Babylonian people not only on the dignity of the law that he is providing to them, but on the very special status that he himself enjoys, that he claims for himself a kind of unique status among the people, and in some ways the preamble is more about Hammurabi than anything else. And I just want you to compare that with the flavor of what we read in the book of Exodus, where you really don't find Moses peddling Moses. I mean, certainly Moses is prominent and gets, you know, rightly so, a fair amount of attention, but the real focus there, of course, is on God himself, who comes down to the majestic power and holiness and glory that's associated with his presence. This is what terrifies the people. This is what gets their attention. This is what gives rise to the warnings that this God might break out against them. There's a very deep sense in which it's God's presence which alarms and fills with awe the people with respect to this law that they're receiving. Really nothing like that at all. That is unique not only when compared with Hammurabi, but compared with any of the ancient Near Eastern civilizations, something different is in the air when you begin to see the way in which God comes to his people and presents himself to them as the Holy One of Israel. And that theme, the holiness of God, as you're well aware, courses its way through the Old Testament documents and represents something that is just startlingly distinct with respect to the way that we see God presented in the Old Testament scriptures as opposed to what we find in other sources, whether it's Hammurabi or anyone else. Let me give you a couple of examples here of uh, individual laws that come from uh, Hammurabi. I want the lawyers in the room to think about due process here on this first one. Quote, if anyone bring an accusation against a man and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sink in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river prove that the accused is not guilty and he escape unhurt, then he who brought the accusation shall be put to death. While he who leaped into the river shall take possession of the house that had belonged to the accuser. Now, if that's the only thing we had from Hammurabi, I doubt that we'd be talking about him today, you know. But it is 
interesting that peppered through these 282 regulations, we do find this sort of trial by ordeal that pops up occasionally. And that in itself, I think, gives us pause. Now, some of Hammurabi's laws are quite enlightened, and I think we can be impressed with them, but this is number two on the list. Out of 282, this is number two, where the proof of innocence is based on how you survive jumping into a river. And as I say, due process usually would say there's probably some other things that should go into the test of guilt or innocence than whether you can swim. But uh, nevertheless, that's the second of them. The third is as follows, quote, if anyone bring an accusation of any crime before the elders and does not prove what he has charged, he shall, if it be a capital offense charged, be put to death. Now this is not dissimilar from something we find in Moses. Uh, Moses does have a rule that if somebody is trying to invoke the judicial process as a way of essentially committing murder, that is to say, I bring an accusation against somebody claiming that I saw them commit some horrible offense, something that would normally result in the death penalty, and then it comes to light that I myself did that with a kind of malicious intent, knowing better, knowing the person was innocent, but trying to use judicial process to, you know, get rid of that person, then I myself should be subjected to the same penalty that I was attempting to subject that person to. You understand how that works. Moses has a similar rule. Personally, I don't think it's such a bad rule, you know. If somebody knowingly uh, accuses someone knowing that they could you know, result in, in that person's death and to have that come back upon them uh, may not be such a bad concept. So at this point, I'm willing to give Hammurabi credit. That was a pretty good rule, I think, and Moses does have something like that. Uh, his fifth rule, his fifth law, if a judge try a case, reach a decision, and present his judgment in writing, if later error shall appear in his decision, and it be through his own fault, then he shall pay twelve times the fine set by him in the case, <clears throat> and shall be publicly removed from the judge's bench, and never again shall he sit there to render judgment. This would be the classic bribery situation. Hammurabi does, to his credit, outlaw bribery of judge. He doesn't want judges who are on the take. He wants judges who are detached and disinterested and will render judgments which are uh, fair to the evidence that's provided. Moses has a similar rule, so we'll give Hammurabi credit for that one. Uh, this one is the eighth of them. If anyone steal cattle or sheep or an ass or a pig or a goat, if it belonged to a god or to the court, the thief shall pay thirtyfold therefore. If they belong to a freed man of the king, he shall pay tenfold. If the thief has nothing with which to pay, he shall be put to death. Notice a couple of things. First, the gradation of the society. The dignity of the person wronged to some degree determines the uh, severity of the punishment. Notice secondly, that if a person is unable to provide restitution, then they may lose their life in the process. Moses doesn't have anything like that. 
he does have a rule of restitution. You steal a guy's sheep, you're caught, you have to pay back fourfold. Moses doesn't have anything so severe as if you're so poor you can't pay it back, then you lose your life. Moses would simply have the person work and work off the debt in some kind of restitution uh, provision there. Uh, a couple of more just for fun. Uh, Hammurabi says, uh, if anyone break a hole into a house to steal, he shall be put to death before that hole and be buried. So you break into someone's house and for that crime of invading someone else's home, you are, you can be put to death. Moses has a rule like that, but it only applies at night. <clears throat> and in fact, we have a rule like that in American jurisprudence. If someone breaks into your house at night, you are not able to surmise their intent and you have reasonable you know, conviction that they may mean you harm, then you can use lethal force at that point. I think you're all aware of that. Uh, the rule doesn't apply in the daytime. Someone breaks in in broad daylight and, and there's no indication of their intent to you know, do you immediate grave bodily harm or death and you are not justified in taking their life. Here in Hammurabi, the rule is somewhat more severe. Moses had a similar kind of distinction as well. Uh, if anyone is uh, committing a robbery and is caught, he shall be put to death. So you, there's a fair amount of severity in these rules. Generally, the laws of Hammurabi covered commercial transactions, slavery relationships, marriage relationships, and theft. That was the broad, most of the rules covered those subject areas. All right, so there's Hammurabi's code. What I'd like to do is <clears throat> describe in the few minutes we have left, which is not too many, but I've got five, okay, uh, the most significant differences between the code of Hammurabi on the one hand and what we find in the law of Moses on the other. The first of these, and one that I think is maybe uh, one of the most interesting, is that Hammurabi's code is in all cases casuistic, whereas Moses provides at the very beginning what's called apodictic law. Casuistic means case law. The formula expression is always if then, if this then that. If a person does this crime, then this is the penalty that will follow. And we saw the examples of that, of course, and that's peppered throughout all of the code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi never gives us what's called apodictic law, pronouncement law, such as what we find in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. You see, you never see that. You never see a great kind of ethical maxim that is the guiding principle under which casuistic law must operate. Moses has casuistic law, Hammurabi does not have apodictic law. And that apodictic law does suggest a kind of divine origin. This is as if God is laying down a great rule by which we should conduct our lives. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. You see these great kind of powerful, solemn pronouncements. Then, casuistic law construes it. For the lawyers in the room, this is very similar, almost uh, identical, really, to our distinction between legislative law and case law. We have some law that comes from the legislature, some that com comes from the cases. And in a sense, in the Old Testament, you have that kind of distinction. Great pronouncements, as it were, God's legislation, followed by application in particular cases. So that's one difference that I think at least is, uh, is interesting and worth 
probably more attention than I've just given it. Moses emphasizes duties to God as the basis for duties to man. Hammurabi doesn't do this. This is important. It may be one of the weightiest differences. For Hammurabi, the reason you obey the law is for the good of the civilization, and the main incentive you have for obeying the law is fear of punishment. There is a kind of might makes right principle that's operating here. Do what you're required to do, or we're going to slap you. Maybe slap you pretty hard. Moses has certainly punishments built into his code, but you realize all along that the real basis for obeying the law is that I have this fundamental prior duty to God. And that's stated in the first four rules of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not make graven images and so on. All of that is to root a person's understanding of obedience in their duties to God, their obligations to honor him and so on. And then out of that flows responsibilities to my neighbor. And that's supposed to be what drives my allegiance to the law and my appreciation of uh, my neighbor's status as one made in the image of God. Moses has no trial by ordeal. You find it peppered through Hammurabi. Some of Hammurabi's rules are pretty good in a due process sense. Some are pretty strange. He has one rule that a thief would have his tongue singed by a red-hot iron. And then the priest examines the blisters on the tongue to determine guilt or innocence. Moses doesn't have that. He doesn't have anything like a trial by ordeal. The closest he comes is a rather strange law that says if a wife is accused of unfaithfulness, she should be brought to the temple or to the tabernacle and made to drink a potion. Well, the potion, if you look at the ingredients, is harmless. It's not a poison or anything like that. And then if the woman is actually guilty, some negative consequences will take place physiologically, and if not, she'll be fine. Personally, I think there's kind of a psychological element behind the whole thing. I don't have time to develop that, but it's certainly not trial by ordeal like jumping into a river or having your tongue singed. I mean, this is really absent from Moses, though it was fairly common in other cultures of the ancient world. Uh, the punishments in Hammurabi are generally quite a bit more severe. We usually view Moses as pretty severe. He has, he has 32 separate capital offenses. That's Moses, you know. Uh, but Hammurabi is even more severe. So in some ways you'd say vis-a-vis -vis Hammurabi, Moses is a model of liberal leniency in the ancient world, uh, not so much in the modern world. Uh, class distinctions are greatly diminished in Moses. There is a kind of uniformity of application of the law, what we would call equal protection under the law. Even the king is bound by the law under Moses. I heard one commentator say once, the king was the least free person in all of ancient Israel because he was not only obligated to keep the law everyone else was obligated to keep, he also had a special law called the king's law, added rules that bound the king. In Hammurabi, no such thing. There's class distinctions, there's varying degrees of guilt or innocence and severity of punishments based on where you are in the social order. That sort of thing is not so present 
in Moses. Moses recognizes in a way that Hammurabi really doesn't the intrinsic value of human life. Moses sees people created in the image of God and worthy of respect just by virtue of being a human being. Uh, in Hammurabi, those class distinctions are pretty conspicuous. Slaves are not much more than chattel property. Uh, the higher you are, the more value you enjoy. That would be another point. I would say the single most important difference is simply the great awesome dignity that's connected to God in the Old Testament. The gods of the Mesopotamians, including the gods worshipped by Hammurabi, were fraught with human foibles. They were possessed of all kinds of, of attitudes and behaviors that we would say would be embarrassing for any self-respecting god. They committed adultery, they were seducers, they were liars, they were cheats, they were engaged in all kinds of behaviors that we would say represents anything but holiness. You read Moses' description of the Lord God Almighty and you see none of that. You see one great unified root of majestic holy, weighty truth, the one who deserves our worship, and the one who, as he gives us his great law, is giving us something that is for our good, honoring one us. who is incontestably the most honorable one in all the universe. And to me, that represents maybe the most conspicuous and important difference between Hammurabi on the one hand and Moses on the other. Code of Laws by Hammurabi When Anu the Sublime, King of the Anunnaki, and Bel, Lord of Heaven and Earth, had decreed the fate of the land assigned to Marduk, the overruling son of Ea, God of Righteousness, dominion over earthly man, and made him great among the Igigi, they called Babylon by his illustrious name, and made it great on the earth, and founded an everlasting kingdom in it, whose foundations are laid so solidly as those of heaven and earth, then Anu and Bel called by name, me, Hammurabi, the exalted prince who feared God to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evildoers, so that the strong should not harm the weak, and so that I should rule over the black-headed people like Shamash, and enlighten the land to further the well-being of mankind. Hammurabi, the prince, called of Bel am I, making riches and increase, enriching Nippur and Durilu beyond compare, sublime patron of E-Kur, who re-established Eridu and purified the worship of E-Apsu, who conquered the four quarters of the world, made great the name of Babylon, rejoiced the heart of Marduk, his lord who pays daily his devotions in Sagil, the royal Sion, whom sin made, who enriched Ur, the humble, the reverent, who brings wealth to Gish Shirgal, the white king, 
heard of Shamash, the mighty, who again laid the foundations of Sippara, who clothed the grainstones of Malkat with green, who made Ibaba great, which is like the heavens, the warrior who guarded Larsa and renewed Ibaba, with Shamash as his helper, the lord who granted new life to Uruk, who brought plenteous water to its inhabitants, raised the head of Yana, the perfect beauty of Anu and Nana, shield of the land, who reunited the scattered inhabitants of Isin, who richly endowed E. Galmach, the protecting king of the city, brother of the god Zamama, who firmly founded the farms of Kish, crowned E. Mete Usang with glory, redoubled the great holy treasures of Nana, managed the temple of Hersag Kalama, the grave of the enemy, whose help brought about victory, who increased the power of Kutar, made all glorious in E. Shidlam, the black steer, who gored the enemy, beloved of the god Nabo, who rejoiced the inhabitants of Borsippa, the sublime, who is indefatigable for E. Zidar, the divine king of the city, the white, the wise, who broadened the fields of Dilbat, who heaped up harvests for Urash, the mighty, the lord whom comes scepter and crown, with which he clothes himself, the elect of Mama, who fixed the temple bounds of Kesh, who made rich the holy feasts of Nintu, the provident, solicitous, who provided food and drink for Lagash and Girsu, who provided large sacrificial offerings for the temple of Ningirsu, who captured the enemy, the elect of the oracle who fulfilled the predictions of Halab, who rejoiced the heart of Anunit, the pure prince, whose prayer is accepted by Adad, who satisfied the heart of Adad, the warrior in Karkar, who restored the vessels for worship in the Iudgalgal, the king who granted life to the city of Adab, the guide of Imach, the princely king of the city, the irresistible warrior who granted life to the inhabitants of Mashkan Sharibi, and who brought abundance to the temple of Shidlam, the white, potent, who penetrated the secret cave of the bandits, saved the inhabitants of Malka from misfortune, and fixed their home fast in wealth, who established pure sacrificial gifts for Ir and Damgal Nunar, who made his kingdom everlastingly great, the princely king of the city, who subjected the districts on the Udkib Nunar canal to the sway of Dagon, his creator, who spared the inhabitants of Merah and Tutul, the sublime prince, who makes the face of Nini shine, who presents holy meals to the divinity of Nin Azu, who cared for the inhabitants in the time of need, provided a portion for them in Babylon in peace, the shepherd of the oppressed and of the slaves, whose deeds find favour before Anunit, who provided for Anunit in the temple of Dimash, in the suburb of Akkad, who recognises the right, who rules by law, who gave back the city of Asher to its protecting god, who let the name of Ishtar of Nineveh remain in E-Mish-Mish, the sublime, who humbles himself before the great gods, the successor of Surmula-Il, the mighty son of Sin-Mubalit, the royal scion of eternity, the mighty monarch, the son of Babylon, 
whose rays shined light over the land of Sumer and Akkad, the king obeyed by the four quarters of the world, beloved of Nini am I. When Marduk sent me to rule over men, to give the protection of right to the land, I did right and righteousness in and brought about the well-being of the oppressed. The Code of Laws 1. If anyone ensnare another, putting a ban upon him, but he cannot prove it, then he that ensnared him shall be put to death. 2. If anyone bring an accusation against a man, and the accused go to the river and leap into the river, if he sinks in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house, but if the river proves that the accused is not guilty, and he escapes unhurt, then he who had brought the accusation shall be put to death, while he who leapt into the river shall take possession of the house that belonged to his accuser. 3. If anyone brings an accusation of any crime before the elders, and does not prove what he has charged, he shall, if a capital offence is charged, be put to death. 4. If he satisfies the elders to impose a fine of grain or money, he shall receive that fine that the action produces. 5. If a judge tries a case, reaches a decision, and presents his judgment in writing, if later error shall appear in his decision, and it be through his own fault, then he shall pay twelve times the fine set by him in the case, and he shall be publicly removed from the judge's bench, and never again shall he sit there to render judgment. If anyone steals the property of a temple or the court, he shall be put to death, and also the one who receives the stolen thing from him shall be put to death. 7. If anyone buys from the son or the slave of another man, without witnesses or a contract, silver or gold, a male or female slave, an ox or a sheep, or an ass or anything, or if he takes it in charge, he is considered a thief and shall be put to death. 8. If anyone steal a cattle or sheep, or an ass or a pig or a goat, if it belong to a god or to the court, the thief shall pay thirtyfold therefore. If they belong to a freed man of the king, he shall pay tenfold. If the thief has nothing with which to pay, he shall be put to death. 9. If anyone lose an article and find it in the possession of another, if the person in whose possession the thing is found says, A merchant sold it to me, I paid for it before witnesses. And if the owner of the thing says, I will bring witnesses who know my property, then shall the purchaser bring the merchant who sold it to him, and the witnesses before whom he bought it, and the owner shall bring witnesses who can identify his property. The judge shall examine their testimony, both of the witnesses before whom the price was paid, and of the witnesses who identify with the lost article on oath. The merchant is then proved to be a thief, and shall be put to death. The owner of the lost article receives his property, and he who bought it receives the money he paid from the estate of the merchant. 10. If the purchaser does not bring the merchant and the witnesses before whom he bought the article, but its owner brings witnesses who identify it, then the buyer is the thief and shall be put to death, and the owner receives the lost article. 11. If the owner does not bring witnesses to identify the lost article, he is an evildoer. He is traduced, and he shall be put to death. 12. If the witnesses be not at hand, 
Then shall the judge set a limit at the expiration of six months. If his witnesses have not appeared within the six months, then he is an evildoer and shall bear the fine of the pending case. Narrator's note. There is no law 13. 14. If anyone steal the minor son of another, he shall be put to death. 15. If anyone take a male or female slave of the court, or a male or female slave of a freed man, outside the city gates, he shall be put to death. 16. If anyone receive into his house a runaway male or female slave of the court, or of a freed man, and does not bring it out at the public proclamation of the major domus, the master of the house should be put to death. 17. If anyone finds a runaway male or female slave in the open country and brings them to their masters, the master of the slaves shall pay him two shekels of silver. 18. If the slave will not give the name of the master, the finder shall bring him to the palace. A further investigation must follow, and the slave shall be returned to the master. 19. If he holds the slaves in his house, and they are caught there, he shall be put to death. 20. If the slave that he caught run away from him, then he shall swear to the owners of the slave that he is free of all blame. 21. If anyone breaks a hole in a house, break into steel, he shall be put to death before that hole and be buried. 22. If anyone is committing a robbery and is caught, then he shall be put to death. 23. If the robber is not caught, then shall he who was robbed claim under oath the amount of his loss. Then shall the community, and on those ground and territory in whose domain it was, compensate him for the goods stolen. 24. If a person's are stolen, then shall the community pay one miner of silver to their relatives. 25. If fire breaks out in a house, and someone who comes to put it out casts his eye upon the property of the owner of the house, and takes the property of the master of the house, he should be thrown into that self-same fire. 26. If a chieftain or man, a common soldier, who has been ordered to go upon the king's highway for war does not go, but hires a mercenary, if he withholds compensation, then shall this officer or man be put to death, and he who represented him shall take possession of his house. 27. If a chieftain or man be caught in the misfortune of the king, captured in battle, and if his fields and garden be given to another and he takes possession, if he returns and reaches his place, his field and garden shall be returned to him. He shall take it over again. 28. If a chieftain or man be caught in the misfortune of the king, if his son is able to enter into possession, then the field and garden shall be given to him. He shall take over the fee of his father. 29. If his son is still young and cannot take possession, a third of the field and garden shall be given to his mother, and she shall bring him up. 30. If a chieftain or man leaves his house, garden and field, and hires it out, and someone else takes possession of his house, garden and field, and uses it for three years, if the first owner returns and claims his house, garden and field, it shall not be given to him, but he who has taken possession of it and used it shall continue to use it. 31. If he hires it out for one year and then returns, the house, garden, and field shall be given back to him, 
and he shall take it over again. 32. If a chieftain or man is captured on the way of the king in war, and a merchant buys him free, and brings him back to his place, if he has the means in his house to buy his freedom, then he shall buy himself free. If he has nothing in his house with which to buy himself free, he shall be bought free by the temple of his community. If there be nothing in the temple with which to buy him free, the court shall buy his freedom. His field, garden, and house shall not be given for the purchase of his freedom. 33. If a lacuna, or a lacuna, enter himself as withdrawn from the way of the king, and send a mercenary as a substitute, but withdraw him, then the lacuna, or lacuna, shall be put to death. 34. If a lacuna, or a lacuna, harm the property of a captain, injure the captain, or take away from the captain a gift presented to him by the king, then the lacuna, or lacuna, shall be put to death. 35. If anyone buys the sheep or cattle of which the king has given to chieftains from him, he loses his money. 36. The field, garden, and house of a chieftain, or a man, or of one subject to quit rent, cannot be sold. 37. If anyone buys the field, garden, and house of a chieftain, man, or one subject to quit rent, his contract tablet of sale shall be broken, declared invalid and he loses his money. The field, garden, and house return to their owners. 38. A chieftain, man, or one subject to quit rent cannot assign his tenure of field, house, and garden to his wife or daughter, nor can he assign it for a debt. 39. He may, however, assign a field, garden, or house which he has bought and holds as property to his wife or daughter, or give it up for debt. 40. He may sell field, garden, and house to a merchant, royal agents, or to any other public official, the buyer holding field, house, and garden for its usufruct. 41. If any one fence in the field, garden, and house of a chieftain, man, or one subject to quit rent, furnishing the palings therefore, if the chieftain, man, or one subject to quit rent returns to the field, garden, and house, the palings which were given to him become his property. 42. If anyone takes over a field to till it and obtain no harvest therefrom, it must be proved that he did no work on the field, and he must deliver grain just as his neighbour raised to the owner of the field. 43. If he did not till the field, but let it lie fallow, he shall give grain like his neighbours to the owner of the field, and the field which he let lie fallow, he must plough and sow, and return to its owner. 44. If anyone takes over a waste-lying field to make it arable, but is lazy, and does not make it arable, he shall plough the fallow field in the fourth year, harrow it and till it, and give it back to its owner, for each ten gan, a measure of area, Ten gur of grain shall be paid. 45. If a man rent his field for tillage for a fixed rental, and receive the rent of his field but bad weather comes and destroys the harvest, the injury falls upon the tiller of the soil. 46. If he does not receive a fixed rental for his field, but lets it on half or third shares of the harvest, 
the grain on the field shall be divided proportionally between the tiller and the owner. 47. If the tiller, because he did not succeed in the first year, has the soil tilled by others, the owner may raise no objection. The field has been cultivated, and he receives the harvest according to agreement. 48. If anyone owes a debt for a loan, and a storm prostrates the grain, or the harvest fails, or the grain does not grow for lack of water, in that year he need not give his creditor any grain. He washes his debt tablet in water, and pays no rent for this year. 49. If anyone takes money from a merchant, and gives the merchant a field tillable for corn or sesame, and orders him to plant corn or sesame in the field, and to harvest the crop, if the cultivator plants corn or sesame in the field, at the harvest the corn or sesame that is in the field shall belong to the owner of the field, and he shall pay corn as rent, for the money he received from the merchant, and the livelihood of the cultivator shall he give to the merchant. 50. If he gives a cultivated cornfield or a cultivated sesame field, the corn or sesame in the field shall belong to the owner of the field, and he shall return the money to the merchant as rent. 51. If he has no money to repay, then he shall pay in corn or sesame in place of the money as rent for what he received from the merchant according to the royal tariff. 52. If the cultivator does not plant corn or sesame in the same field, the debtor's contract is not weakened. 53. If anyone be too lazy to keep his dam in proper condition, and does not so keep it, then if the dam breaks and all the fields be flooded, then he in whose dam the break occurred be sold for money, and the money shall replace the corn which he has caused to be ruined. 54. If he is not able to replace the corn, then he and his possessions should be divided among the farmers whose corn he has flooded. 55. If anyone opens his ditches to water his crop, but is careless, and the water floods the field of his neighbour, then he shall pay his neighbour corn for his loss. 56. If a man lets in the water, and the water overflow of the plantation of his neighbour, he shall pay ten gur of corn for every ten gan of land. 57. If a shepherd, without the permission of the owner of the field, without the knowledge of the owner of the sheep, lets the sheep into the field to graze, then the owner of the field shall harvest his crop, and the shepherd, who had pastured his flock here without the permission of the owner of the field, shall pay to the owner twenty gur of corn for every ten gan. 58. If, after the flocks have left the pasture and been shut up in the common fold at the city gate, any shepherd let them into a field, and they graze there. This shepherd shall take possession of the field which he has allowed to be grazed on, and at the harvest he must pay sixty gur of corn for every ten gan. 59. If any man, without the knowledge of the owner of a garden, fell a tree in the garden, he shall pay half a minor in money. 60. If anyone give over a field to a gardener, for him to plant as a garden, if he work at it and care for it four years, in the fifth year the owner and the gardener shall divide it, the owner taking his part in charge. 61. If the gardener has not completed the planting of a field, leaving one part unused, this shall be assigned to him as his. 62. 
if he does not plant the field that was given over to him as a garden, if it be arable land for corn or sesame, the gardener shall pay the owner of the produce of the field for the years he let it lie fallow, according to the product of neighbouring fields, put the field in arable condition, and return it to its owner. 63. If he transforms waste land into arable fields and returns it to its owner, the latter shall pay him for one year ten gur for ten gan. 64. If anyone hands over his garden to a gardener to work, the gardener shall pay to its owner two-thirds of the produce of the garden, for so long as he has it in his possession, and the other third he shall keep. 65. If the gardener does not work in the garden, and the product falls off, the gardener shall pay in proportion to other neighbouring gardens. Here a portion of the text is missing, apparently comprising 34 paragraphs. 100. Lacuna. Interest for the money. As much as he has received, he shall give a note therefore, and on the day which they settle, pay the merchant. 101. If there are no mercantile arrangements in the place whither he went, he shall leave the entire amount of money which he received with the broker to give to the merchant. 102. If a merchant entrusts money to a broker for some investment, and the broker suffers a loss in the place to which he goes, he shall make good the capital to the merchant. 103. If, while on the journey, an enemy take away from him anything that he had, the broker shall swear by God and be free of obligation. 104. If a merchant gives an agent corn, wool, or oil, or any other goods to transport, the agent shall give a receipt for the amount, and compensate the merchant therefor. He shall obtain a receipt from the merchant for the money that he gives the merchant. 105. If the agent is careless, and does not take a receipt for the money which he gave the merchant, he cannot consider the unreceipted money as his own. 106. If the agent accepts money from the merchant, but has a quarrel with the merchant, denying the receipt, then shall the merchant swear before God and witnesses that he has given this money to the agent, and the agent shall pay him three times the sum. 107. If the merchant cheats the agent, in that as the latter has returned him all that had been given him, but the merchant denies the receipt of what has been returned to him, then shall this agent convict the merchant before God and the judges, and if he still denies receiving what the agent had given him, he shall pay six times the sum to the agent. 108. If a tavern-keeper, feminine, does not accept corn according to gross weight in payment of drink, but takes money, and the price of the drink is less than that of the corn, she shall be convicted and thrown into the water. 109. If conspirators meet in the house of a tavern-keeper, and these conspirators are not captured and delivered to the court, the tavern-keeper shall be put to death. 110. If a sister of a god opens a tavern or enters a tavern to drink, then this woman shall be burned to death. 111. If an innkeeper furnishes sixty car of usakini drink to lacuna, she shall receive fifty car of corn at the harvest. 112. 
if anyone be on a journey and entrust silver, gold, precious stones, or any movable property to another, and wishes to recover it from him, if the latter did not bring all of the property to the appointed place, but appropriates it to use his own, then shall this man who did not bring the property to hand it over be convicted, and he shall pay fivefold for all that has been entrusted to him. 113. If anyone has a consignment of corn or money, and he takes from the granary or box without the knowledge of the owner, then shall he who took corn without the knowledge of the owner of the granary or money out of the box be legally convicted and repay the corn he has taken, and he shall lose whatever commission was paid to him or due him. 114. If a man has no claim on another for corn and money and tries to demand it by force, he shall pay one-third of a mina of silver in every case. 115. If anyone should have a claim for corn or money upon another and imprison him, if the prisoner dies in prison a natural death, the case shall go no further. 116. If the prisoner dies in prison from blows or maltreatment, the master of the prison shall convict the merchant before the judge. If he was a free-born man, the son of the merchant shall be put to death. If it was a slave, he shall pay one-third of a mina of gold, and all that the master of the prison gave, he shall forfeit. 117. If anyone fails to meet a claim for debt, and sells himself, his wife, his son, and daughter for money, or to give them away to forced labour, they shall work for three years in the house of the man who bought them, or the proprietor, and in the fourth year they shall be set free. 118. If he gives a male or female slave away for forced labour, and the merchant subleases them, or sells them for money, no objection can be raised. 119. If anyone fails to meet a claim for debt, and he sells the maidservant who has borne him children for money, the money which the merchant has paid shall be repaid to him by the owner of the slave, and she shall be freed. 120. If anyone stores corn for safekeeping in another person's house, and any harm happens to the corn in storage, or if the owner of the house opens the granary and takes some of the corn, or if he especially denies that the corn was stored in his house, then the owner of the corn shall claim his corn before God on oath, and the owner of the house shall pay its owner for all the corn that he took. 121. If anyone stores corn in another man's house, he shall pay him storage at the rate of one gur for every five car of corn per year. 122. If anyone gives another silver, gold, or anything else to keep, he shall show everything to some witness, draw up a contract, and then hand it over for safekeeping. 123. If he turns it over for safekeeping without witnesses or contracts, and if he to whom it was given denies it, then he has no legitimate claim. 124. If anyone delivers silver, gold, or anything else to another for safekeeping, before a witness, but he denies it, he shall be brought before a judge, and all that he has denied he shall pay in full. 125. If anyone places his property with another for safekeeping, and there, either through thieves or robbers, his property and the property of the other man may be lost, the owner of the house through whose neglect the loss took place, shall compensate the owner for all that was given him in charge. 
but the owner of the house shall try to follow up and recover his property and take it away from the thief. 126. If anyone who has not lost his goods state that they have been lost and makes false claims, if he claims his goods and the amount of injury before God, even though he has not lost them, he shall be fully compensated for his loss claimed. 127. If anyone points the finger at a sister of a god or the wife of anyone and cannot prove it, this man shall be taken before the judges and his brow shall be marked. 128. If a man takes a woman to wife but has no intercourse with her, then this woman is no wife to him. 129. If a man's wife be surprised with another man, both shall be tied and thrown into the water, but the husband may pardon his wife and the king his slaves. 130. If a man violates the wife, betrothed or child wife of another man who has never known a man and still lives in her father's house and sleeps with her and be surprised, this man shall be put to death, but the wife is blameless. 131. If a man brings charge against one's wife, but she is not surprised with another man, she must take an oath and they may return to her house. 132. If the finger is pointed at a man's wife about another man, but she is not caught sleeping with the other man, she shall jump into the river for her husband. 133. If a man is taken prisoner in war, and there is sustenance in his house, but his wife leaves house and court to go to another house, because this wife did not keep her court and went to another house, she should be judicially condemned and thrown into the water. 134. If anyone is captured in war, and there is not sustenance in his house, then his, if his wife goes to another house, this woman shall be held blameless. 135. If a man be taken prisoner in war, and there is no sustenance in his house, and his wife goes to another house and bears children, and if later her husband returns and come to his home, then the wife shall return to her husband, but the children follow their father. 136. If anyone leaves his house, run away, and then his wife goes to another house, if he then returns and wishes to take his wife back, because he fled from his home and ran away, the wife of this runaway shall not return to her husband. 137. If a man wishes to separate from a woman who has borne him children, or from his wife who has borne him children, then he shall give that wife her dowry, and a part of the usufruct of a field, garden, and property, so that she can rear her children. When she has bought up her children, a portion of all that is given to the children, equal as that of one son, shall be given to her. She may then marry the man of her heart. 138. If a man wishes to separate from his wife who has borne him no children, then he shall give her the amount of her purchase money and the dowry which she brought from her father's house, and let her go. 139. If there was no purchase price, he shall give her one miner of gold as a gift of release. 140. If he be a freedman, he shall give her one-third of a miner of gold. 141. If a man's wife, who lives in his house, wishes to leave it, plunges into debt, tries to ruin her house, neglects her husband, and is judicially convicted, if her husband offers her release, 
She may go on her way, but he gives her nothing as a gift of release. If her husband does not wish to release her, and if he takes another wife, she shall remain as servant in her husband's house. 142. If a woman quarrels with her husband and says, You are not congenial to me, the reasons for her prejudice must be presented. If she is guiltless, and there is no fault on her part, but he leaves and neglects her, then no guilt attaches to this woman. She shall take her dowry and go back to her father's house. 143. If she is not innocent, but leaves her husband and ruins her house, neglecting her husband, this woman shall be cast into the water. 144. If a man takes a wife, and this woman gives her husband a maidservant, and she bears him children, but this man wishes to take another wife, this shall not be permitted to him. He shall not take a second wife. 145. If a man takes a wife, and she bears him no children, and he intends to take another wife, if he takes the second wife and brings her into the house, the second wife shall not be allowed equality with his wife. 146. If a man takes a wife, and she gives this man a maidservant as a wife, and she bears him children, and then this maidservant assumes equality with the wife, because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her among the maidservants. 147. If she has not borne him children, then her mistress may sell her for money. 148. If a man takes a wife, and she be seized by disease, if he then desires to take a second wife, he shall not put away his wife, who has been attacked by disease, but shall keep her in the house which he has built, and support her so long as she lives. 149. If this woman does not wish to remain in her husband's house, then he shall compensate her for the dowry which she brought with her from her father's house, and she may go. 150. If a man gives his wife a field, garden, and house, and a deed, therefore, and if then, after the death of her husband, the sons raise no claim, then the mother may bequeath it all to one of her sons whom she prefers, and need leave nothing to his brothers. 151. If a woman who lived in a man's house made an agreement with her husband that no creditor can arrest her, and has given a document therefore, if that man before he married that woman had a debt, the creditor cannot hold the woman for it. But if the woman, before she entered the man's house, had contracted a debt, her creditor cannot arrest her husband therefore. 152. If after the woman has entered the man's house, both contracted a debt, both must pay the merchant. 153. If the wife of one man on account of another man has their mates, her husband and the other man's wife, murdered, both of them shall be impaled. 154. If a man is guilty of incest with his daughter, he shall be driven from the place. 155. If a man betrothed to a girl his son, and his son has intercourse with her, but he, the father, afterwards defiles her, and be surprised, then he shall be bound and cast into the water. 156. If a man betrothed to a girl his son, but his son has not known her, and if he, the father, then defiles her, he shall pay her half a gold miner, and compensate her for all that she brought out of her father's house. 
she may marry the man of her heart. 157. If anyone is guilty of incest with his mother after his father, both shall be burned. 158. If anyone be surprised that his father with his chief wife, who has borne children, he shall be driven out of his father's house. 159. If anyone who has brought chattels into his father-in-law's house has paid the purchase money, looks for another wife, and says to his father-in-law, I do not want your daughter, the girl's father may keep all that he had brought. 160. If a man brings chattels into the house of his father-in-law and pays the purchase price for his wife, then if the father of the girl says, I will not give you my daughter, he shall give him back all that he brought with him. 161. If a man brings chattels to his father-in-law's house and pays the purchase price, then if his friends slander him and his father-in-law says to the young husband, You shall not marry my daughter, then he shall give back to him undiminished all that he had brought with him, but his wife shall not be married to the friend. 162. If a man marries a woman and she bears sons to him, then if this woman dies, then shall her father have no claim on her dowry. This belongs to her sons. 163. If a man marries a woman and she bears him no sons, then if this woman dies, if the purchase price which he had paid to the house of his father-in-law is repaid to him, her husband shall have no claim upon the dowry of this woman, for it belongs to her father's house. 164. If this father-in-law does not pay back to him the amount of the purchase price, he may subtract the amount of the purchase price from the dowry, then pay the remainder to her father's house. 165. If a man gives to one of his sons, whom he prefers, a field, garden, and house, and a deed therefore, if later the father dies, and the brothers divide the estate, they shall first give him the present of his father, and he shall accept it, and the rest of the paternal property they shall divide. 166. If a man takes wives for his son, but takes no wife for his minor son, and if he then dies, if the sons divide the estate, they shall set aside besides his portion the money for the purchase price for the minor brother who has taken no wife yet, and secure a wife for him. 167. If a man marries a wife and she bears him children, if this wife dies and then he takes another wife and she bears him children, if then the father dies, the sons must not partition the estate according to the mothers. They shall divide the dowries of their mothers only in this way. The paternal estate they shall divide equally with one another. 168. If a man wishes to put his son out of the house and declares before the judge, I want to put my son out, then the judge shall examine into his reasons. If the son be guilty of no great fault for which he can be rightfully put out, then the father shall not put him out. 169. If he be guilty of a grave fault, which should rightly deprive him of the filial relationship, the father shall forgive him the first time. But if he be guilty of a grave fault the second time, the father may deprive his son of all filial relation. 170. If his wife bears sons to a man, or his maidservant have borne sons, and the father, while still living, says to the children whom his maidservant has borne, 
my sons, and he counts them with the sons of his wife, if the father dies, then the sons of the wife and of the maidservant shall divide the paternal property in common. The son of the wife is to partition and choose. 171. If, however, the father while still living did not say to the sons of the maidservant, My sons, and then the father dies, then the sons of the maidservant shall not share in the sons of the wife, but the freedom of the maid and her sons shall be granted. The sons of the wife shall have no right to enslave the sons of the maid. The wife shall take her dowry from her father, and the gift that her husband gives her, and deeded to her, separate from the dowry or the purchase money paid her father, and live in the home of her husband. So long as she lives, shall she use it. It shall not be sold for money. Whatever she leaves shall belong to her children. 172. If her husband made no gift, she shall be compensated for her gift. She shall receive a portion of the estate from her husband, equal to that of one child. If her sons oppress her to force her out of the house, the judge shall examine into the matter. If the sons are at fault, the woman shall not leave her husband's house. If the woman desires to leave the house, she must leave to her sons the gift which her husband gave her, but she may take the dowry of her father's house. She may then marry the man of her heart. 173. If this woman bears sons to her second husband, in the place to which she went, and then dies, her earlier and later sons shall divide the dowry between them. 174. If she bears no sons to her second husband, the sons of her first husband shall have the dowry. 175. If a state slave or the slave of a freed man marries the daughter of a free man, and children are born, the master of the slave shall have no rights to enslave the children of the free. 176. If, however, a state slave or the slave of a freed man marries a man's daughter, and after he marries her brings a dowry from a father's house, if they both enjoy it and found a household, and accumulate means, then if the slave dies, then she who was free-born may take her dowry, and all that her husband and she had earned, she shall divide them into two parts, one half the master for the slave shall take, and the other half shall the free-born woman take for her children. If the free-born woman had had no gift, she shall take all that her husband and she had earned, and divide it into two parts. The master of the slave shall take one half, and she shall take the other for her children. 177. If a widow, whose children are not grown, wishes to enter into another house, she shall not enter it without the knowledge of the judge. If she enters another house, the judge shall examine the state of the house of her first husband. Then the house of her first husband shall be entrusted to the second husband, and the woman herself as managers. And a record must be made thereof. She shall keep the house in order, bring up the children, and not sell the household utensils. He who buys the utensils of the children of a widow shall lose his money, and his goods shall be returned to their owners. 178. If a devoted woman or a prostitute to whom her father has given a dowry, and a deed thereof, but in this deed it is not stated that she may bequeath it as she pleases, and has not explicitly stated that she has the right of disposal, if then her father dies, then her brothers shall hold her field and garden, 
give her corn, oil, and milk, according to her portion, and satisfy her. If her brothers do not give her corn, oil, and milk, according to her share, then her field and garden shall support her. She shall have the usufruct of field and garden, and all that her father gave her, so long as she lives, but she cannot sell or assign it to others. Her position of inheritance belongs to her brothers. 179. If a sister of a god or a prostitute receives a gift from her father, and a deed in which it has been explicitly stated that she may dispose of it as she pleases, and gives her complete disposition thereof, if then her father dies, she may then leave her property to whomever so she pleases. Her brothers can raise no claim thereto. 180. If a father gives a present to his daughter, either marriageable or prostitute unmarriageable, and then dies, then she is to receive a portion as a child from the paternal estate, and enjoy its usufruct as long as she lives. Her estate belongs to her brothers. 181. If a father devotes a temple maid or temple virgin to God, and gives her no present, then if the father dies, she shall receive the third of a child's portion from the inheritance of her father's house, and enjoy its usufruct as long as she lives. Her estate belongs to her brothers. 182. If a father devotes his daughter as a wife of Mardi of Babylon, and gives her no present nor a deed, then if her father dies, she shall receive one-third of her portion as a child of her father's house, from her brothers, but Marduk may leave her estate to whomever she wishes. 183. If a man gives his daughter by a concubine a dowry, and a husband and a deed, if then her father dies, she shall receive no portion from the paternal estate. 184. If a man does not give a dowry to his daughter by a concubine, and no husband, then if her father dies, her brother shall give her a dowry according to her father's wealth, and secure a husband for her. 185. If a man adopts a child, and to his name as a son, and rear him, this grown son cannot be demanded back again. 186. If a man adopts a son, and if after he has taken him, he injures his foster father and mother, then his adopted son shall return to his father's house. 187. The son of a paramour in the palace service, or of a prostitute, cannot be demanded back. 188. If an artisan has undertaken to rear a child, and teaches him his craft, he cannot be demanded back. 189. If he has not taught him his craft, this adopted son may return to his father's house. 190. If a man does not maintain a child that he has adopted as a son, and reared with his other children, then his adopted son may return to his father's house. 191. If a man who had adopted a son and reared him, founded a household and had children, wished to put this adopted son out, then this son shall not simply go his way. His adoptive father shall give him of his wealth one-third of a child's portion, and then he may go. He shall not give him of the field, garden, and house. 193. If the son of a paramour or a prostitute desires his father's house, and deserts his adoptive father and adoptive mother, and goes to his father's house, then his eye shall be put out.
194. If a man gives his child to a nurse, and the child dies in her hands, but the nurse, unbeknown to the father and mother, nurses another child, then they shall convict her of having nursed another child without the knowledge of the father and the mother, and her breasts shall be cut off. 195. If a son strikes his father, his hands shall be hewn off. 196. If a man puts out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. 197. If he breaks another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. 198. If he puts out the eye of a freedman, or breaks the bone of a freedman, he shall pay one gold miner. 199. If he puts out the eye of a man's slave, or breaks the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half of its value. 200. If a man knocks out the teeth of his equal, his teeth shall be knocked out. 201. If he knocks out the teeth of a freed man, he shall pay one-third of a gold mina. 202. If anyone strikes the body of a man higher in rank than he, he shall receive sixty blows with an ox whip in public. 203. If a freeborn man strikes the body of another freeborn man of equal rank, he shall pay one gold mina. 204. If a freed man strikes the body of another freed man, he shall pay ten shekels in money. If a slave of a freed man strikes the body of a freed man, his ear shall be cut off. 206. If during a quarrel one man strikes another and wounds him, then he shall swear, I did not injure him wittingly, and pay the physicians. 207. If the man dies of his wound, he shall swear similarly that he, the deceased, was a freeborn man, and he shall pay half a mina in money. 208. If he was a freed man, he shall pay one-third of a mina. 209. If a man strikes a freeborn woman so that she loses her unborn child, he shall pay ten shekels for her loss. 210. If the woman dies, his daughter shall be put to death. 211. If a woman of the free class loses her child by a blow, he shall pay five shekels in money. 212. If this woman dies, he shall pay half a minor. 213. If he strikes the maidservant of a man and she loses her child, he shall pay two shekels in money. 214. If this maidservant dies, he shall pay one-third of a mina. 215. If a physician makes a large incision with an operating knife and cures it, or if he opens a tumour over the eye with an operating knife and saves the eye, he shall receive ten shekels in money. 216. If the patient be a freed man, he receives five shekels. 217. If he be the slave of someone, his owner shall give the physician two shekels. 218. If a physician makes a large incision with the operating knife and kills him or opens a tumour with the operating knife and cuts out the eye, his hands shall be cut off. 219. If a physician makes a large incision in the slave of a freed man and kills him, he shall replace the slave with another slave. 220. 
if he has opened a tumour with the operating knife and put out his eye, he shall pay half his value. 221. If a physician heals the broken bone or diseased soft part of a man, the patient shall pay the physician five shekels in money. 222. If he were a freed man, he shall pay three shekels. 223. If he were a slave, his owner shall pay the physician two shekels. 224. If a veterinary surgeon performs a serious operation on an ass or an ox and cures it, the owner shall pay the surgeon one-sixth of a shekel as a fee. 225. If he performs a serious operation on an ass or an ox and kills it, he shall pay the owner one-fourth of its value. 226. If a barber without the knowledge of his master cut the sign of a slave on a slave not to be sold, the hands of this barber should be cut off. 227. If anyone deceives a barber and have him mark a slave not for sale but with the sign of the slave, he shall be put to death and buried in his house. The barber shall swear I did not mark him wittingly and shall be guiltless. 228. If a builder builds a house for someone and completes it, he should be given a fee of two shekels in money for each sar of surface. 229. If a builder builds a house for someone and does not construct it properly, and the house for which he built falls in and kills its owner, then that builder should be put to death. 230. If it kills the son of the owner, the son of the builder shall be put to death. 231. If it kills a slave of the owner, then he shall pay slave for slave to the owner of the house. 232. If it ruins goods, he shall make compensation for all that has been ruined, and inasmuch as he did not construct properly this house which he built and it fell, he shall re-erect the house from his own means. 233. If a builder builds a house for someone, even though it is not yet completed it, if the walls seem toppling, the builder must make walls solid from his own means. 234. If a shipbuilder builds a boat of sixty gur for a man, he shall pay him a fee of two shekels in money. 235. If a shipbuilder builds a boat for someone and does not make it tight, if during that same year the boat is sent away and suffers injury, the shipbuilder shall take the boat apart and put it together tight at his own expense. The tight boat shall he give to the boat owner. 236. If a man rents his boat to a sailor, and the sailor is careless, and the boat is wrecked or goes aground, the sailor shall give the owner of the boat another boat as compensation. 237. If a man hires a sailor and his boat, and provides it with corn, clothing, oil and dates, and other things of the kind needed for fitting it, if the sailor is careless, and the boat is wrecked, and the contents ruined, then the sailor shall compensate for the boat which was wrecked, and all in it that he ruined. 238. If a sailor wrecks anyone's ship, but saves it, he shall pay half of its value in money. 239. If a man hires a sailor, he shall pay him six gur of corn per year. 240. If a merchantman runs against a ferry boat, and wrecks it, and the master of the ship that was wrecked shall seek justice before God, the master of the merchantman, which wrecked the ferry boat, must compensate the owner for the boat and all that he ruined. 241. 
If anyone impresses an ox for forced labour, he shall pay one third of a mina in money. If anyone hires oxen for... <clears throat> 242. If anyone hires oxen for a year, he shall pay four gur of corn for plough oxen. 243. As rent of herd cattle, he shall pay three gur of corn to the owner. 244. If anyone hires an ox or an ass, and a lion kills it in the field, the loss is upon its owner. 245. If anyone hires oxen, and kills them by bad treatment or blows, he shall compensate the owner oxen for oxen. 246. If a man hires an ox, and he breaks its leg or cuts the ligament of its neck, he shall compensate the owner with an ox for ox. 247. If anyone hires an ox and puts out its eye, he shall pay the owner one half of its value. 248. If anyone hires an ox and breaks off a horn, or cuts off its tail, or hurts its muzzle, he shall pay one-fourth of its value in money. 249. If anyone hires an ox, and God strikes that it die, the man who hired it shall swear by God, and be considered guiltless. 250. If while an ox is passing on the street, someone pushes it and kills it, the owner can set up no claim against the suit. 251. If an ox be a goring ox, and it is shown that it is a gorer, and he does not bind its horns or fasten the ox up, and the ox gores a freeborn man and kills him, the owner shall pay one half a mina in money. 252. If he kills a man's slave, he shall pay one third of a mina. 253. If anyone agrees with another to tend his field, gives him seed and entrust a yoke of oxen to him, and bind him to cultivate the field, if he steals the corn or plants and, and takes them for himself, his hands shall be hewn off. 254. If he takes the seed corn for himself and does not use the yoke of oxen, he shall compensate him for the amount of the seed corn. 255. If he sublet the man's yoke of oxen or steal the seed corn, planting nothing in the field, he shall be convicted, and for each 100 gan, he shall pay 60 gur of corn. 256. If his community will not pay for him, he shall then be placed in that field with the cattle at work. 257. If anyone hires a field labourer, he shall pay him 8 gur of corn per year. 258. If anyone hires an ox driver, he shall pay him 60 gur of corn a year. 259. If anyone steals a water wheel from the field, he shall pay five shekels in money to its owner. 260. If anyone steals a shadoof, used to draw water from the river or canal, or a plough, he shall pay three shekels in money. 261. If anyone hires a herdsman for sheep or cattle, he shall pay him eight gur of corn per annum. 262. If anyone, a cow or a sheep, lacuna. 263. If he kills the cattle or sheep that were given to him, he shall compensate the owner with cattle for cattle and sheep for sheep. 264. If a herdsman to whom cattle or sheep have been entrusted for watching over, who has received his wages as agreed upon and is satisfied, diminishes the number of cattle or sheep, 
or makes the increase by birth less, he shall make good the increase or profit which was lost in the terms of settlement. 265. If a herdsman, to whose care cattle or sheep have been entrusted, is guilty of fraud and makes false returns of the natural increase, or sells them for money, then he shall be convicted and pay the owner ten times the loss. 267. If the herdsman overlooks something, and an accident happens in the stable, then the herdsman is at fault for the accident which he has caused in the stable, and must compensate the owner for the cattle or sheep. 268. If anyone hires an ox for threshing, the amount of hire is twenty car of corn. 269. If he hires an ass for threshing, the hire is twenty car of corn. 270. If he hires a young animal for threshing, the hire is ten car of corn. 271. If anyone hires oxen, cart, and driver, he shall pay 180 car of corn per day. 272. If anyone hires a cart alone, he shall pay 40 car of corn per day. 273. If anyone hires a day labourer, he shall pay him from the new year until the fifth month, April to August, when the days are long and work hard, six gerars of money per day. From the sixth month to the end of the year, he shall give him five gerars per day. 274. If anyone hires a skilled artisan, he shall pay his wages of the lacuna five gerars, as wages of the potters five gerars, of a tailor five gerars, of lacuna gerars, lacuna, of a rope maker four gerars, of lacuna, gerars, of a mason lacuna gerars per day. 275. If anyone hires a ferry boat, he shall pay three gerars in money per day. 276. If he hires a freight boat, he shall pay two and a half gerars per day. 277. If anyone hires a ship of 60 ger, he shall pay one-sixth of a shekel in money as its hire per day. 278. If anyone buys a male or female slave, and before a month has elapsed, the Bennu disease be developed, he shall return the slave to the seller and receive the money which he has paid. 279. If anyone buys a male or female slave, and then a third party claims it, the seller is liable for the claim. 280. If, while in a foreign country, a man buys a male or female slave belonging to another of his own country, if, when he returns home, the owner of the male or female slave recognises it, if the male or female slave be a native of the country, he shall give them back without any money. 281. If they are from another country, the buyer shall declare the amount of money paid therefore to the merchant and keep the male or female slave. 282. If a slave says to his master, You are not my master, if they convict him, his master shall cut off his ear. Epilogue Laws of justice which Hammurabi the wise king established. A righteous law, a pious statute, did he teach the land. Hammurabi the protecting king am I. I have not withdrawn myself from men, whom Bel gave to me, the ruler over whom Marduk gave to me. I was not negligent, but I made them a peaceful abiding place. I expounded all great difficulties. I made the light shine upon them. 
with the mighty weapons which Zamama and Ishtar entrusted me, with the keen vision which Ea endowed me, with the wisdom that Marduk gave me, I have uprooted the enemy above and below, subdued the earth, brought prosperity to the land, guaranteed security to the inhabitants in their homes. A disturber was not permitted. The great gods have called me. I am the salvation-bearing shepherd, whose staff is straight, the good shadow that is spread over my city. On my breast I cherish the inhabitants of the land of Sumer and Akkad. In my shelter I let them repose in peace. In my deep wisdom I have enclosed them. That the strong might not injure the weak, in order to protect the widows and orphans, I have in Babylon the city where Anu and Bel raise high their head, in E-Sagil, the temple whose foundations stand as firm as heaven and earth, in order to bespeak justice in the land, to settle all disputes, to heal all injuries. Set up these my precious words, written upon my memorial stone, before the image of me as king of righteousness. The king who ruleth among kings of the cities am I. My words are well considered. There is no wisdom like unto mine. By the command of Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth, let righteousness go forth in the land. By the order of Marduk, my lord, let no destruction befall my monument. In Isagal, which I love, let my name be ever repeated. Let the oppressed, who has a case at law, come and stand before this, my image as a king of righteousness. Let him read the inscription and understand my precious words. The inscription will explain his case to him. He will find out what is just, and his heart will be glad, so that he will say, Hammurabi is a ruler, who is as a father to his subjects, who holds the words of Marduk in reverence, who has achieved conquest for Marduk over the north and south, who rejoices as the heart of Marduk, his lord, who has bestowed benefits for ever and ever on his subjects, and has established order in the land. When he reads the record, let him pray with a full heart to Marduk, my lord, and Zarpanit, my lady, and then shall the protecting deities and the gods, who frequent E-Sagil, graciously grant the desires daily presented before Marduk, my lord, and Zarpanit, my lady. In future time, through all coming generations, let the king who may be in the land observe the words of righteousness, which I have written on my monument. Let him not alter the law of the land, which I have given, the edicts which I have enacted. My monument let him not mar. If such a ruler has wisdom, and be able to keep his land in order, he shall observe the words which I have written in this inscription, the rule, statute, and law of the land which I have given. The decisions which I have made will this inscription show him. Let him rule his subjects accordingly. Speak justice to them, give right decisions, root out miscreants and criminals from the land, and grant prosperity to his subjects. Hammurabi, the king of righteousness, on whom Shamash has conferred right, am I. My words are well considered. My deeds are not equaled. Bring low those that were high. Humble the proud to expel insolence. If a succeeding ruler considers my words, which I have written in this my inscription, if he does not annul my law, nor corrupt my words, nor change my monument, 
then may Shemash lengthen that king's reign, as that he did of me, the king of righteousness, that he may reign in righteousness over his subjects. If this ruler does not esteem my words, which I have written in my inscription, if he despises my curses and fears not the curse of God, if he destroys the law which I have given, corrupts my words and changes my monument, effaces my name and writes his name there, or on account of the curses commission another to do so. That man, whether king or ruler, patesi or commoner, no matter what he may be, may the great God Anu, father of the gods, who has ordered my rule, withdraw from him the glory of royalty, break his scepter, curse his destiny. May Bel the Lord who fixeth destiny, whose commands cannot be altered, who has made my kingdom great, order a rebellion which his hand cannot control. May he let the wind of the overthrow of his habitation blow. May he ordain the years of his rule in groaning, years of scarcity, years of famine, darkness without light, death with seeing eyes be fated to him. May Bel order with his potent mouth the destruction of his city, the dispersion of his subjects, the cutting off of his rule, the removal of his name and memory from the land. May Belit, the great mother, whose command is potent in the Ikur, the mistress who hearkens graciously to my petitions, be in the seat of judgment and decision, turn his affairs evil before Bel, and put the devastation of his land, the destruction of his subjects, the pouring out of his life like water into the mouth of King Bel. May Ear, the great ruler, whose fated decrees come to pass, the thinker of the gods, the omniscient, who maketh long the days of my life, withdraw understanding and wisdom from him, lead him to forgetfulness, shut up his rivers at their sources, and not allow corn or sustenance for man to grow in his land. May Shemash, the great judge of heaven and earth, who supporteth all means of livelihood, lord of life courage, shatter his dominion, annul his law, destroy his way, make vain the march of his troops, send him in his visions, forecasts of the uprooting of the foundations of his throne and the destruction of his land. May the condemnation of Shamash overtake him forthwith. May he be deprived of water above among the living and his spirit below in the earth. May Sin, the Lord of heaven, the divine father whose crescent gives light amongst the gods, take away the crown and regal throne from him. May he be put upon him heavy guilt, great decay, that nothing may be lower than he. May he destine him as fated, days, months, and years of dominion filled with sighing and tears, the increase of the burden of dominion, a life that is like unto death. May Adad, the lord of fruitfulness, the ruler of heaven and earth, my helper, withhold from him the rain from heaven and the waters of flood from the springs destroying his land by famine and want. May he rage mightily over his city and make his land into the flood hills. May Zamama, the great warrior, the firstborn son of Ikur, who goeth at my right hand, shatter his weapons on the field of battle, turn day into night for him, and let his foe triumph over him. May Ishtar, the goddess of fighting and war, who unfetters my weapons, 
my gracious protecting spirit who loveth my dominion, curse his kingdom in her angry heart. In her great wrath, change his grace to evil, and shatter his weapons on the place of fighting and war. May she create disorder and sedition for him, strike down his warriors, that the earth may drink their blood, and throw down the piles of corpses of his warriors on the field. May she not grant him a life of mercy, deliver him into the hands of his enemies, and imprison him in the land of his enemies. May Nagal, the might among the gods, whose contest is irresistible, who grants me victory, in his great might burn up his subjects like a slender reed stalk, cut off his limbs with his mighty weapons, and shatter him like an earthen image. May Nintu, the sublime mistress of the lands, the fruitful mother, deny him a son, vouchsafe him no name, give to him no successor among men. May Nin Karak, the daughter of Anu, who adjudges grace to me, cause to come upon his members in Ikur high fever, severe wounds which cannot be healed, whose nature the physician does not understand, which he cannot treat with dressing, which, like the bite of death, cannot be removed until they have sapped away his life. May he lament the loss of his life power, and may the great gods of heaven and earth, the Anunnaki, together inflict a curse and evil upon the confines of the temple, the walls of this Ibarra, upon his dominion, his lands, his warriors, his subjects, and his troops. May Bel curse him with the potent curses of his mouth that cannot be altered, and may they come upon him forthwith.